Hello, film fans, and welcome to A Very Good Year, a new podcast where we invite a guest, a filmmaker or writer or actor or musician, anybody who loves movies, to pick their favorite year of movies and talk to us all about that year. I'm Jason Bailey, and across the mic and across the country from me is my co-host, Michael Hull. Our guest today is one of the finest film critics in the country, uh, an alum of the AV Club and the late lamented The Dissolve. He and his frequent collaborator on those sites, Scott Tobias, have a Substack newsletter called The Reveal, which I highly recommend you subscribe to, and are among the co-hosts of the Next Picture Show podcast. You can also read him at GQ, Vulture, TV Guide, and more. And his wonderful book, The Age of Cage, was published earlier this year. Folks, this is Keith Phipps. Hi, Keith. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me on. Thank you so much for doing this. And, uh, you know, it's I, we, we talk about this every time. You know, this is your our fifth guest now. And it's been really interesting because so far, everyone, when they're asked to pick a year, either have picked something from way before they were born, deep into the into the depths of film history, or have wanted to talk about a year that they lived through, went to movies during, and quite frequently covered as a film critic slash film journalist. Uh, which of those camps do you fall into? So, I, well, first of all, I, what do you do when you run out of years? Do you just kind of start over? <laughs> but, we will um, start over. We'll say, uh, okay, well, just exploitation <laughs> movies then. That's what we'll do. So I'm on the record from an AV Club feature we did way, way back in the day uh, as my favorite movie year being 1967, uh, mm -hmm. which I had to, to actually look that up to remind myself what my favorite movie year was <laughs> on the record. Um, I, you know, if I'm doing it now, I'm not sure I'd choose that. But for purposes of this, I wanted to choose something when I was alive and going to movies and had really vivid memories of what was going on in the world in addition to that. So I chose 2001. One, uh, an, an eventful year, of course, um, <laughs> and a year where, uh, you know, also a year where the movies that don't make my list could have been a fine list. I think it was a really good year for movies, so I thought it would give us a lot to talk about. So tell us where you were at as a film goer, as a film writer, as a film consumer uh, in the year 2001. So I was the assistant editor of the AV Club, and this was also the year I moved to Chicago. In, in part because my my the woman I would later marry, my my, my beloved wife, um, got into grad school at Northwestern. Um, so I followed her down here, but also it's like you know it's. I love Madison, Wisconsin. I sure. miss Madison, Wisconsin pretty frequently, but it's not necessarily a great place to to write about movies from, you know, because because <laughs> really we were in the habit. Hub. Yeah. No, and we were kind of in the habit of just showing up at the multiplex day of. Right. And then we'd be a week late, late with our reviews, but you know, we were I mean, we were an afterthought in the back of the onion at that point. So, you know, I don't think anyone noticed. It was like a nice way to kind of, you know, uh, the stakes were lower than I think yes. than, than when, when, when we came a well-read website. Um, and like at that point, Scott Tobias, who you mentioned before, had already moved to Chicago and was mm. regaling me with stories of, of how wonderful it is to go to, to, to professional screenings with other film right. critics and things like that. So, you know, I, uh, I moved down here in August. I've been here ever since, but I, it really is when I think of the year is like, 
I can remember where I saw movies and it's divided between Madison and Chicago. And like, I know the last movie I saw in Madison uh, at a now shuttered multiplex uh, was Jurassic Park three. And then I moved down here and I think um, I forget what the first thing I saw here, but, but uh, it was, you know, quite, quite, quite the change, you know, to yeah. be in the, in the thick of things. And uh, this is when, you know, Ebert was still with us uh, and, and uh, you know, Michael Wilmington was at the Tribune and, and Rosenbaum was at the reader. Like you were, you know, big, big deal critics. You know, people I really looked up to and and was you know <laughs> wasn't sure what I was doing in their midst at the time, <laughs> and and still am not. But you know, that's that's that for me was you know obviously there is another big dividing line uh, that colors everything, including right. the film going of that year, uh, which I'm sure we'll get into a, as well. But but um, the first one for me is is Madison versus Chicago. Gotcha, gotcha. And then yes, of course, you know. Uh, we had you on um, Fun City podcast to talk about 2001 in movies, to talk about 9-11 in movies, to talk about 25th Hour. Um, mm-hmm. I, and it's still, it made it into the podcast, but for anyone who didn't hear that, what were you doing on 9-11? I was, <laughs> uh, I was writing a movie review. I was writing yes. a movie review of the film Big Trouble, uh, and uh, and for, it was, for 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 film goers who may not have caught Big Trouble, um, what? Why is that a, a particularly ironic title to have been covering? To have been writing, literally writing about that day. Well, the climax and and my 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 memory of the actual plot details are are, are fuzzy, but it involves a hijacked plane and a potential right. terrorist situation. And I was like, you know, obviously just trying to distract myself, as I often do. You know, I, I mean, I did it again during the insurrection. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> okay, I know this is going on, but I really do have to write this review. <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, and then I was like, oh wait a minute, this movie is unreleasable. This movie will never, ever see the light of day. Uh, uh, yeah, we like to laugh about it now. Um, yeah. And it's not, you know, it's actually not a bad movie. If I, my memory of it is pretty faint, as I said, but but yeah. it's it's fine. But when it actually came out, I well, many months later, and I believe in a slightly altered form, although yes. I'm not sure, uh, someone else wrote the review. I was like, I just, I can't with this movie. <laughs> just I need, to, I had my big trouble yeah. experience, and I, I need to put some distance between myself and that. Deeply cursed. Well, on that note, um, let's go ahead and turn uh, turn things over to Mike uh, to hear a little bit about that and some of the other things that were happening in the world outside the movie theater in 2001. Here's headlines. I mean, the thing about 2001 headlines, even just in researching them, not just in my own personal sort of attempting to recollect what happened before September. Right. But when you try to research like news in 2001, you know, you really have to sort of like teach yourself some Google skills and, you know, sort of work your way back from September 10th because everything gets so overwhelmed. So, but there were some, some things that happened in that year. iTunes and Wikipedia were both launched um, in 2001, which obviously would come to have a major part in our lives as the, uh, as the future loomed, right? George W. Bush was sworn in as president in the beginning of 2001. And, and you know, the big conversation then was just sort of how unprepared he was and how he didn't really win. And and now, you know, Dick Cheney was going to run everything, but it was still very vague and it was sort of focused on, yeah. you know, uh, Exxon just being able to do whatever they want, you know? So it was, it's sort of interesting to read, you know, political 
uh, writing about George W. Bush when he was first sworn in because it all in a way, but don't spend very long on it because you, <laughs> it immediately just feels incredibly irrelevant. Um, in forgotten news, the Taliban began destroying the Buddha of Bamiyan statues um, as part of their sort of Islamic, uh, you know, their interpretation of of Islam and, and destroying icons and images. Uh, that was I was upset about it. It was some great art. And then the U.S. and U.K. Uh, together bombed Iraqi oil fields. Um, obviously, you know, that's a sort of forgotten attack on Iraq, uh, something that we don't really remember anymore because, you know, things would get bigger from there. But we already sort of, you know, at least those guys did. I don't mean to say we when we're talking about Bush and Blair, but, uh, you know, they already had their sort of sites fixed. Um, there was a lot of talk happening about the bursting of the dot-com bubble that uh, the bursting started in 2000. Most of 2001 was just sort of prognostication about whether or not it was over. The answer is that it was not. Uh, Slobodan Milosevic was arrested and charged with war crimes because he was in charge of a poor country when he lost his mind. Um, in early September, right before September 11th, we welcomed the first orca created through artificial <laughs> insemination because we are a deeply weird species. Uh, and then 9-11 happened, uh, which I'm not going to recount here. If you want to hear our extended thoughts on that day from all three of us, check out the Fun City Cinema episode about Spike Lee's 25th hour. I do want to add, when you mentioned that, that the Orca thing happened in early September, it's like, it, this this does recall, you know, because we mentioned the AV Club, one of the all-time great Onion headlines from whatever it was, like September 15th, uh, nation longs to care about stupid bullshit again. Um, yep. with like Brittany with the snake on her and yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was, I was really proud to be a part of the larger onion organization yeah. at that point. I, yeah. I think that was a remarkable, uh, issue. And like, there's uh, here, I'll, I'll give you a little peek behind the curtain. You know, there's not. Uh, yeah, obviously they're all anonymous. Uh, but this was like, he wasn't like a regular contributor, but that headline is from my former boss, uh, Stephen Thompson now at NPR. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, definitely the, one of the, one of the great ones. Yeah. In news that movie people don't care about the Baltimore Ravens won the Super Bowl that year, but not until the Backstreet Boys sung the national anthem. Uh, find that on YouTube. It's worth it. The Arizona Diamondbacks won the World Series. The L.A. Lakers won the NBA championship. And there was not a World Cup in 2001. So all things considered, it could have been a better year. That's headlines. Thank you, Mike. And now, Keith Phipps, let's do a top five. Um, what is, is, is the order, uh, is there any particular order that we're going to go in here? Is this a ranked list? Is this a, a chronological and autobiographical? Cause we've actually found that, that the order of the list sometimes tells us just as much as the list itself. I, I'm not that imaginative. I'm just going to do a reverse ranked list. Um, and I was, I was struck by, I, I look back at my actual top 10 list from that year. I was like, you know, this, this is pretty good. I, I subbed out one <laughs> movie from the top five and moved some stuff around. Um, but, you know, I felt pretty good about all all my choices here. So, yeah, let's just go start, right. start with five and work our way up. Let's do it. So, uh, Keith Phipps, what was your number five movie? of the year 2001. My number five was The Royal Tenenbaums by, by Wes Anderson. Royal Tenenbaum bought the house on Archer Avenue in the winter of his 35th year. Over the next decade, he and his wife had three children and then they separated.
Are you getting divorced? At the moment, no. But uh, it doesn't look good. Do you still love us? Of course I do. Do you still love Mom? Yes, very much. But your mother's asked me to leave, and I must respect her position on the matter. Was it our fault? No. Oh, obviously, we made certain sacrifices as a result of having children, but... Uh, no, Lord, no. Uh, a, a film that I, you know, I, I highly, you know, anticipate it and 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 greatly as as a fan of his first two films, and I think with as with most of his films, it took me. I liked it a lot when I saw it the first yeah. time, and it took me a second viewing to like really um, love it, and mm-hmm. I love it more each time I watch. I, I notice more. I, you know, I appreciate the depth. I, I feel like it is, um, you know, there's all kinds of things that people critique him for um you know this but i i, I think there's you know the, the, obviously the 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 fussiness and, and the deliberateness of it but but there's you know to me all that stuff is just this container for this really deep emotional core for his films yeah. the best ones uh, as, uh, all of them uh, go for it but but the best ones mm-hmm. really get there and tenderbombs to me is 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 just as, as you know, one of his most heartbreaking films and, and funniest as, as well. I, I'm yeah, big fan, big fan of that movie. It, it holds up uh, really brilliantly. Yeah. I, I found in revisiting it for, uh, for the book that I, you know, I'm sure I was affected at the time, but it really is interesting to view it through the lens of this is a movie that people were watching right after nine 11. Mm-hmm. Like this premiered at the New York film festival, like a month after nine 11 And the fact that so much of it is about Stiller's character's loss of of, uh, a spouse and the trauma they're in and the sort of paranoia and fear following a loss and the the poignancy of that, you know, that I... There may not be a line in the Anderson filmography that I hear quoted as much as Chaz to Royal, you know, it's been a rough year, dad. Like that's such a, that's maybe the most purely emotionally powerful moment in, in that filmography. And so much of that just seems like it was obviously not directly inspired by, but certainly hit harder in the wake of that. Yeah, absolutely. I, I knew you were going to quote that line too. Because it's, 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 it's certainly the first one I, I think of, and it's certainly a line I've thought of at various points in my life as well. So it's a film. Yeah. It's a film with resonance for sure. Yeah, definitely. There's, I, I don't really consider fussiness a, a, a criticism in film personally. <laughs> like, I think that's totally fine. Uh, and I like his movies. Are there any criticisms of him that land for you? Because a lot of the things that I read criticisms of his, I just kind of think are very silly. But there's been a couple that that sort of especially looking at his like overall filmography that have sort of landed as I was reading about, but don't necessarily come up for me as I'm watching. I wonder if there's any of those sort of common criticisms that you think stick for some reason. And if they don't stick to this movie. Right. I mean, I think there is there is definitely a, a there's an undeniable ethnocentrism to to his work. And and one that, that as a as a, um, a, you know, middle American white dude, I'm not necessarily always the first person to catch. I mean, I remember seeing, um, uh, you know, uh, I, uh, Isle of Dogs and thinking, well, it's kind of a goof on what Americans 
idea of Japan is and not really right. a, 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 you know, a collection of Japanese stereotypes. But I think that ultimately it may be just a distinction without a difference. You know, <laughs> I, I, you know, it, it is, you know, it, it's still the same, you know, you're watching the same things. It's just what, what lens you watch it through. Uh, but I not necessarily know that that's necessarily that's always available to, to everyone. Um, right. Yeah. So, I mean, there's, there's that. Yeah, I do think there's that. I do also think that he, it feels you want people to improve. You want people to hear things and get better. I do feel like he's at least trying to work on that somewhat in more recent films, you know, and the specifically the presence of the Jeffrey Wright character and his importance Mm -hmm. in French dispatch, I think was kind of a, kind of a big deal in terms of like, of a, a protagonist of color in a, in a Wes Anderson film. Yeah. And that's the one I'm sure my opinion of, of this film will shift again, but that's the one where it's like, I think I maybe liked it a little less the second time I saw it in some ah, way, but I love the Jeffrey Wright stuff. This stuff's amazing. It's like, it's the, it's the uh, Paris 68 things. That I, I feel like he may just be in a little over his head in, in a little over his head in terms of like <laughs> what that, so. what that style can, t- can actually cover in some ways. Right. But you know, I, I appreciate, I appreciate the, 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 the stretch. Yes. Definitely. All right. Keith Phipps, what is your number four film of 2001? Uh, My number four film is Waking Life by Richard Linklater. On this bridge, Lorca warns, life is not a dream. Beware. And beware. And beware. And so many think, because then happened, now isn't. But didn't I mention the ongoing wow? is happening right now. This is where it gets a little autobiographical because I just remember <laughs> um, being in the screening room in Chicago. And this was, I forget mm. how close to 9-11 it screened, but to just be in a world of ideas and, and curiosity and the sort of this inquiring spirit of, of, of this film and just to bounce from like one speculation about about the the nature of the universe to another even if one of those is change the thing that come alex jones um it, it right it was so refreshing to remember that this is still out there you know that we're, we mm. haven't just it is not there is more to, right now we're trapped in this this horrible struggle and the world's become very simplistic and and um a lot of people are doing the wrong thing uh, on 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 all sides of what's going on, but there is still this you know this curiosity and intellectual uh, pursuits and and search for connection between people and and it was just to it was it was like just you know stepping out of a crowded room and into uh, into getting fresh air at that point. And, and, yeah, I love the film still. I mean, it's a film I haven't revisited in a little while, but I but I, every time I'd watch it pretty frequently in the years after. And, and um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I love that film. Yeah. Where do you think, I mean, where does it fall sort of in the overall link later filmography for you? Like, is this one of your favorites of his films? It is. is, I, is he... there, there's so many of them <laughs> at that point, right. you know, to, 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 I haven't actually done a link later listing, but, but it would definitely be top five. I mean, there's no way it's not top five link later for me. I, I, I still, um, you know, I, I, it's a film I treasure. The only thing that I sort of was surprised about it, think you know, when I think back on it now from 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 this vantage point versus when it came out and when I saw it, I felt like 
we were going to get a lot more movies like this mm. in terms of the, of the the specific the rotoscoping animation the idea of how that could sort of um allow a, a, a freedom in storytelling how that could also kind of cover up you know, like you could make a pretty low budget movie if you could you know and and it have it look much more expensive if you had like a friend who knew how to do that mm-hmm. um you know aside from his two further explorations of of the technique there hasn't been a lot of it and i'm sort of surprised by that we got a series of insurance commercials that use the same <laughs> technique uh but beyond of that course. no of course. and like i think it's um i think it's most effective here uh i, I like a scanner darkly and that's the one i liked better when i revisited i i, I really like apollo 10 and a half too i think it really it suits like it really suits this kind of dream state of waking life, but also kind of like the memory, the memory play of Apollo right. 10 and a half. Like, you know, you could do, I love a scrupulous production design that gets the period exactly right. But when you're dealing with a memory, it's probably better that, that, you know, some details are really crystal clear. Like, you know, what the opening credits of uh, mission impossible, the TV series right. look like, uh, and some things are fuzzier and like, you know, allowed to, yeah. to be, uh, uh, just kind of, you know, obscured in the background. And yeah, it is, it's definitely, I guess maybe on the bright side, he owns it, you know, it's just, it's just, it's, it can be, it's a, it's a trademark of his. Yeah. Yeah. I, I must, <laughs> I always am curious when I meet a waking life fan, um, did you enjoy marijuana as a young man? Did you, <laughs> you know, did you partake of it around this period? What's I, your, how I've, does that line up for I you? I have never watched this film under the influence. Well, this is me dodging the question of my own, my own habits here, but uh, I've never watched this film. I, mean, I do remember <laughs> someone saying uh, they attend, um, they attended a, a screening hosted by Linklater. And it's like, how many of you like to, it's like, I'm paraphrasing. I wasn't even there. So it's a paraphrase of a paraphrase, but it's like, how many of y'all like to get, right. like to get high? And it's like, you know, response, response, response. It's like, okay, this one's for you, <laughs> you know? <laughs> uh, so, <laughs> uh, so, you know, I, I, I perhaps, perhaps it needs another watch. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> All right, Keith, what is your number three movie of 2001? Uh, my number three film is AI, Artificial Intelligence. In a distant future, in an age of intelligent machines, he is the first robotic child programmed to love and coexist as a member of a family. His is a tale of humanity and a journey to find his place among humans and machines. This top five Spielberg for me. I um, I think it's a remarkable film. Uh, it's another one I, I get more out of every time I see it. Um, yeah. And like I walked away from it a little puzzled. You know, the first time I was like, I really like this, but I don't know. You know, and then then mm-hmm, now, mm-hmm. And, and of course it's it's the final act that throws people, and it threw me. Um, I always liked it, but I'm not sure I really got it until subsequent visits when you realize it is not an artificially uh, uh, artificial uplift, but as depressing of an ending of a film as you'll ever see. Um, So um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I got a chance to see that um, projected here at the music box in Chicago uh, a couple years ago. So it was really good to see it again on the, on the big screen. Um, Again, it's, it's a remarkable film, a singular achievement and, and really is, I think in some ways the best of Spielberg and the best of Kubrick in, in one film. That I I, I want to talk about that a little more because like you know I I found that particularly right after it came out 
the that people's responses to it initially at least told quite a bit also about their feelings about Kubrick, mm-hmm. their feelings about Spielberg, their feelings about this uh, odd way of collaborating. Um, what? Tell me more about the idea of the best of both. You know, it's interesting. I think I think Spielberg said at times also that that what you think of as the as the most Kubrickian elements are the ones that the heat contributed and the, and the <laughs> ones that the more Kubrickian ones are what what Kubrick did. So I think the fact that they're so tangled right. tangled up. Um, right. that, you know, the, it makes it kind of interesting puzzle. It feels like a real brundle fly of a film where you, you get, you know, I think the emotional heart is not something that you expect from Kubrick. And I think in some ways it's one of Spielberg's chillier films, but I think it also just has some of the most heartbreaking stuff you'll see. I mean, I, I, mm-hmm. and you know, I, I hate to pull the, as a father line, but as a, <laughs> as a father, that scene where, where she takes him to the woods and says, I'm, I'm sorry yeah. for not telling you about the world. I'm going I'm to choke up. I, you know, I choked up talking about it on, on our podcast. I'm going to choke up talking about it here. It just, it, it just <laughs> yeah. hits so hard. And I, you know, I love every section of the film. I, I, you know, I kind of like watching it. I look forward to like, okay, we're going to do the flesh fair now on this. And then they're all mm-hmm. kind of, and, and that's kind of, you know, that, that the, the chapter approach is definitely, I think in some ways Kubrick's more you can see him the most like it is yeah. 2001 like not in every sense but in the sense that we're going to do this now and this is what we're going to deal with and, and we'll move on to another chapter after that and you know the the open-endedness of the ending um is a different and, you know it's it's a it's a i we're however you read the end of 2001 this is this is in some ways kind of the elegiac b-side of it in some ways right uh you know humanity really winding down instead of entering a new a new phase i remember being struck at the time and feeling like you know because again spielberg is an artist in progress like he's been a work in progress for most of his career and there was always a sense on some of his riskier projects like he w- he was doing new things he never sort of codified in the way that a that a popular kind of blockbuster filmmaker often does and i really felt like in terms of the chilliness and the darker stuff in it i f- it really felt to me as a viewer like it was almost like because he was doing like if he were adapting a book you know what i mean mm-hmm. like it, the the fact that he was doing what was whether it's credited that way or not, an adaptation of someone else's work that he felt like that almost gave him a freedom to do things that were atypical of his, his style to that point, which I think is one of the things that makes it fascinating to watch then. And also when you see sort of how the, the directions he's gone since. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it is, it, in some ways it does kind of feel like an opening to what would come next in his career. Uh, but also kind of feels like a chapter onto itself. It's like, this is, this right. is me, my homage to my, to my, to my friend, his, his unfinished work. And it's up to me to complete it. The idea of, you know, the sort of, uh, Spielberg as working out his relationship with his parents yeah. in his movies is something that we sort of talk about mm-hmm. a lot, you know, now that I don't remember us talking about when I was, yeah (laughs) right they were much more sort of face value yeah and i I wonder if that sort of impacts on you know just the scenes that you mentioned sort of obviously that element of this film is really important to you but also now he's a parent a grandparent maybe yeah yeah, i mean he's he's of the age Mm -hmm, right i mean so like 
that that conversation is sort of happening in the opposite direction a little bit now too. But I feel like we're that's something I haven't heard much about yet, and I feel like sort of that's maybe going to be the next wave of of what I'm interested in at least about criticism of his movies is looking into that sort of element the way we did his relationship with his parents. Yeah, no, this this isn't one that I hear mentioned as part of that uh, all that often. So that's really interesting. Well, in fact, I don't think he thought about parenthood, certainly in this first, you know, right, right away. I mean, Close Encounters is one of my favorite films, but you watch it and it's like, we're really cheering <laughs> this guy just, you know, he, abandoning he, his family, he, abandoning his family in part because they're, they 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 lack the whimsy to want to go see Pinocchio instead of going to, to yes. Goofy Golf. It's like I mean, it's a very it's a very young man's yeah. film in some ways, and I think he was, yeah. he even said I wouldn't do that now. But right. like, yeah, I, I I took my wife had never seen that, and they were playing it again here at the music box, um, uh, a great yeah. theater, and and she's like, I like this movie, but. I can't really get past this. You know? <laughs> yeah. All right, Keith, what is your number two movie of 2001? My number two is uh, David Lynch's Mulholland Drive. Yes? May I help you? Someone is in trouble. Who are you? What are you doing in Ruth's apartment? She's letting me stay here. I'm her niece. My name's Betty. No, it's not. That's not what she said. Someone is in trouble. Something bad is happening. Uh, certainly yeah. one of the most. I didn't see. I didn't go to the critic screening of that. I just saw it uh, with my mm. wife, and it, it is really just one of the most intense, you know, big screen viewing experiences I've ever had. Especially if you don't know what's coming, I kind to yeah. kind of avoid it. Um, you know, reading about it too much beyond the fact that people liked it, and it's kind of. Interest, you know, it's it's weird to think back now. And he'd done the straight story a few year, a couple years previous, which kind of yep. restored him in some ways. But like Lynch's stock was pretty low, uh, yeah. You know, for much of the nineties, you know, if you bought yeah. if you bought Lynch stock after Firewalk with me, you'd you you'd be you be this is a good time to to you know to, to reap in the profits because you know you know and, and you look back. Firewalk with me is one that's taken me a long time to come around on, in part because mm-hmm. I was a big Twin Peaks fan, and this is a movie that's basically, in some ways, oh, this is what what do you what do you want from a Twin Peaks movie? I'm going to give you none of that. <laughs> Fuck you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, uh, I'm going to open with smashing a television and just get even more annoyed by the whole yeah. project from there. Um, and I, I don't know why it didn't connect with me then, but Lost Highway just didn't and now it's Mm -hmm. you know i i love it now and it is it is and and i think at that that point you know i was at a low ebb in in terms of like anything i thought was like nihilistic and it felt like a very nihilistic film and i think it's a lot more complex than that now um Mm -hmm. but um but this is you know in some ways a very similar film to lost highway particularly with with the, the huge narrative zags but um i think but it's a it's a it's a more user-friendly film. You know, you, the fact that it began as a TV pilot kind of brings you into this world in, 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 a, in a more, I hate the word approachable, sure. but I think approachable is probably the, the best, best word here. Uh, way that accommodating it, maybe? It's, yeah. It's accommodating in a way that, that, it, that it might not be otherwise? He, he's making, I don't want to, compromises isn't right, but he's definitely making, <laughs> like you say, accommodations for, for viewers yeah. who are going to watch this at home. And then sure. the fact that it just, you know, saved 
you know, save this from from the scrap heap and turn it into to something. I, you know, maybe it would have been a remarkable series in its own right. But you know, this is one where it's like I don't care. I, I love what we got. This is what he does. This is the the um, you know alternate universe stuff he does, or whatever you want to call it, is is so remarkable. It's one of the most amazing things I've seen in a film, and it still is. Yeah. Now, I my my memories of this are so attached to. Um, Again, because it came out in like October, I believe, of, mm-hmm. of 2001. It was after Toronto. I think a lot of people saw it in Toronto, which I've never been to. Yeah, yeah. And I was not a, a pro film critic of this. So I just, mm-hmm. like you, I just went, I went to, uh, Mike, you remember the, the shithole known as Cinemas West in Wichita, Kansas? Oh, yeah, yeah buddy. Yeah. I went to see it there for, you know, top-notch projection and presentation. <laughs> um, I kid you not. Good seats, too. Oh, my God. Yeah, no, the, the like, this is, the, the theater was so, like, as soon as it ends and it goes to the credits, it's one of those theaters where, like, as soon as the credits started, just, like, full, full lights on, blasting out uh uh elevator music piped in like a a slide for like a local business is projected like over the end credits like it's a very jarring way to come out of of the spell cast by Mulholland Drive but I have such a such a clear memory of uh a piece on salon.com that was being updated like all through the fall mm. of just like like interpretations what does it mean explainer um uh, metaphor breakdown like this sort of massive uh, uh touchstone of like and it just felt like the thing that like i i kept having to go back and reread and i and and people were were talking about as like because no one knew how the fuck to make heads or tails of this movie they knew it was incredible but if you wanted to understand it you kind of had to do all this you know legwork but I, I i finally came to a point with lynch on this movie who i'd resisted a lot of the earlier stuff where I finally just gave myself over to him. Um, and I think you kind of have to with this movie. And then once you do, it takes you to some incredible places. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I just, you know, one remarkable scene after, after another, I mean, I, if you want to just point to a single scene that explains, I think how movies work where, where it's, <laughs> it's a silencio scene where it's like, you're, t- right. it's like everything you're about to see is fake. And then, right. and then everyone watching the show, everyone watching the film of uh, the people watching the show is just swept up in this incredible emotion. And then the curtains pulled away again. I mean, I, I don't know. I, I love it. I love it so much. Um, and to your, the salon point, um, do you remember when the DVD came out and there was like 10 Lynch provided like 10 clues, which yes. I, May just may have just been you know him fucking with the with the the viewers yes. or maybe not you know who knows yes yes all right well that brings us to the top Keith the number one movie of two thousand one my number one movie of two thousand one is is one car wise in in the mood for love um yeah I, where where do you start talking about this one I don't I don't even yeah. I don't even know I I just um beyond just like putting up a bunch of a bunch of heart emojis I mean. Um, <laughs> I mean, I don't know that there's any more cinematic type of love than a love that just never happens or is never consummated or it's just it's just a unspoken desire that's never realized. And, and you know, this is that done, you know, the, on the on the grandest possible scale, you know, in the context of this, 
you know, walk through Wong Kar Wai's memories of, you know, growing up in, in Hong Kong at a particular point in time yeah. and just, just filling it with all these details that, that, that he'd remember from childhood and, and projecting this, this bitter, you know, bittersweet doesn't even quite sum it up uh, love story in the, yeah. in, in the midst of it. And went with two remarkable performances of, of, you know, two of the most beautiful people you'll see on screen being beautiful. And, and uh, for the, I mean, for, the whole movie yep. is so like, it's, it's one of the most just purely beautiful films ever in yeah. terms, beautiful people in beautiful clothes on beautiful sets, beautifully photographed, like it, any frame from this movie, you could, you know, slap up on your wall, but it, it's also never purely an aesthetic object mm -hmm. there's so much pain and tenderness pulsing underneath it it's miraculous yeah there's a there's actually a poster of it up on my wall <laughs> so uh <laughs> you're you are correct in, in in that sense too um and and it, it's not Mulholland Drive but it does require a little unpacking in terms of of you know what sure. actually happens in it too it's certainly a film to you can you can you can marinate in um it's it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a it's a mood piece and in, in, in all and beyond in ways beyond the title i think when did you first see this and 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 how has it lived uh in your life since then i saw it in madison at the orpheum which is a big um oh yeah music a big a, a big movie theater that had at that point started to fall into, into, into a little bit of a disrepair, which is kind of the perfect place to see this film in some right. ways. <laughs> um, but uh, it's now sadly just a music and you know concert venue, and they don't yep. show, show movies there, which which makes me sad. Um, but I think I saw it three times, you know, at least twice with wow. my, with my wife. I mean, I just you know it was you know I think we were we were um, you know we went, decided to go see a movie. It's like why don't we just go see In the Mood for Love again? You know, it's like why why wouldn't mm -hmm. you? As long as that movie is. <laughs> playing in your town just go see it as much as you can right yeah yeah when that happens you have to do it like when you you know it's like there's not very many movies that really that where you're like you know what we should shouldn't we yeah i feel like you have to listen to that bug when it starts singing absolutely yeah. all right well keith that is a magnificent top five of uh of five real just all-timers right there uh so it is always a little jarring when we go from these you know carefully curated um beautiful collections of of films that have stood the test of time to the movies that actually won awards and uh won at the box office that year so mike walk us through if you will the awards and box office sell out with me oh yeah sell out with me tonight. Beautiful Mind had a great year at the Oscars that year. Won Best Picture. Ron Howard got Best Director, Best Supporting Actress for Jennifer Connelly, and Best Adapted Screenplay. Where do you land on uh, on the old Beautiful Mind there, Keith Phipps? I mean, I haven't seen it since. I don't really, I didn't really care for it much at, at the time. I do like, you know, everyone involved. I was, it's funny, I was, I was going through the Ron Howard filmography, and it's like, you know, not a lot of home runs but a lot of like you know I, i'm using a baseball metaphor for you michael uh, um, <laughs> but but a lot of you know nice solid singles and doubles you know yeah. uh this isn't this isn't a film i've really felt the need to, to revisit since then i i it's, it's kind of a shocking best picture winner given <laughs> given the year uh who else what were the other what were the other nominees for that one uh mike will carry on and i will i will uh fetch those for you yeah uh denzel washington won best actor for training day Still kind of hard to argue yep, with that nope, one. Great movie, great performance. <laughs> um, 
Halle Berry won at Best Actress for Monsters Ball. I mean, pretty hard to argue with yeah, that. Yeah, one. it's been a yeah, while, yeah, but I don't know what else was movie. on the list, but she deserved to be on the list. I have uh, the best uh, picture nominees here. If uh, it is, uh, and I think Beautiful Mind is is the weakest of them. Uh, it's uh, Moulin Rouge, uh, Lord of the Rings, Fellowship of the Ring, In the Bedroom, and Gosford Park, uh, all of which I like better than A Beautiful Mind. Yep. Uh, Iris won uh, Best Supporting Actor for Jim Broadbent, and uh, Julian Fellows won Best Original Screenplay for Gosford mm. Park, which also got that Best Picture nomination. Yeah, Iris and Gosford Park. Keith, where did where did you land on those? I liked Iris. It's been, I my memory of it is is you know uh, again pretty. It's not one I've revisited. Uh, you know, it's a little, a little faded, but I really I, you. I, don't, you you don't fire that one up every uh, every couple of months. No, but I remember like you know all four lead performances. I mean, how are you going to argue with you know Dench, sure. Winslet, Broadbent, and Hugh, Hugh Bonneville? Uh, yeah, yeah it, uh, so it's fine. And then what was the? I'm sorry, what was the other one? Uh, Gos- oh, Gosford Park. Love it. I love it. You know that's a, and 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 it is. You know it does it knowing where fellows you know fellows what a fellow screenplay looks like in its rawest right. form, which I like. You know it's fine, but but. It makes no sense to have Robert Altman direct that kind of screenplay, and yet here we are. And it is, uh, right. it, you know, it is it is another Brundle fly of a film. I think I think you kind of get the best of of, of both of them there. Yeah, I have had to revisit when I first saw Gosford Park. I I didn't love it just because I was like such a Robert Altman head, and I mm-hmm. wanted everything to be very subversive in that really specific way and this is subversive in a very different way mm-hmm. um once i knew what to expect i appreciated it much more uh golden globes moulin rouge had a good year best picture comedy or musical best actress for nicole kidman comedy or musical uh and i feel like a lot of attention yes a lot of people a lot of people wanted to talk about moulin rouge I, I find recall. it a divisive motion picture, Keith. Uh, where do you sit on that one? I like it. We, we just revisited it for the next picture show. We paired it with Elvis because that's what we do. We pair sure. a new movie with an older movie. And I, I had the same experience. I usually, I have every time I watch it, it was like the first five minutes, you know, with Leguizamo, <laughs> whose performance I both basically like, but as, as, as Toulouse-Lautrec and all his company of actors like like is this actually the worst thing i've ever seen and then when you get to the first big <laughs> musical number where it's just like one music you know one song after another this huge splash of production is like is this maybe the best movie i've ever seen <laughs> i mean i ultimately land uh, on neither end of the spectrum there but i do, I do like it quite quite a bit uh your uh, your favorite royal tenenbaums won best actor at the golden globes was that which, which uh, one? Hackman? Yeah, Hackman. It would have to be Hackman. Yeah, right? for Hackman. for best actor for, in a comedy or musical. For, yeah, I I would like to have his for his final performance. It's, <laughs> it's, 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 it's not, but <laughs> we all love to pretend like that was his final performance. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what else did well? With I the like others? that that movie won for comedy. Yeah. <laughs> also, by the way, like you know, like that's what I like. It's definitely I can see how it got in that category. Yes. But as mentioned, like it's not you know, Big Daddy or whatever. You know what I mean? Like, there's something else there inside yes. of this co- comedy movie. I'm yes. That. Anyway. Uh, Lord of the Rings, Fellowship of the Ring won the BAFTA for Best Picture and Best Director. Keith, uh, where do you land on the Lord of the Ring movies? I'm a fan of those movies. I, I mean, Two Towers is the best one, but, but, but um, you know, it's... 
I, I'm kind of like looking back at my top 10. It's like, yeah, I guess maybe I'm just being snobby about putting on my top 10 anywhere for that year. But but uh, it is, you know, it's it's an incredible achievement technically. But also I think he, he you know, Jackson had really kind of cracked how to how to tell the story. And yeah, and, and it shows. And best original screenplay at the Baptist for Amelie. Mm. That's one that we haven't mentioned yet. Uh, it's all right. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't love Amelie. Um, I don't love Amelie. Yeah, it's, it's all right. There's a big piece of coal where that heart should be. Yeah, right. I guess. Um, I guess. And I know, you know, it's it's like not liking puppies or whatever, but. It's, <laughs> and uh, that might here, be the problem. Here, here we are. Um, <laughs> all right, domestic top ten, Mike. What uh, what were people shelling out bucks for this year? None of the shit we've been talking about. <laughs> Not a damn one of them. <laughs> Lord of the Rings uh, come in at number ten with 163 million. I want to pause uh, that because that that this was my biggest shock. Now this is domestic, you know. It's it, I I believe it was higher on the chart for worldwide, but I was shocked that Lord of the Rings, for such a juggernaut that it became, was as low on the list this year as it is. Does that take into account the money it made? That like in January and February, because yeah, oh really? yeah, surprising though. I, I mean, when you hear some of the things that made more than it did from that year, you will be surprised. Hmm. Now, you know, later later installments, of course, uh, did considerably better. But uh, go ahead, Mike. N- number nine under Lord of the Rings. For instance, is that a perfect example of yeah. what you're talking about, Jason Bailey? Be. Number it nine might. was Hannibal with 165 <laughs> million dollars. Ridley Scott's uh, beloved Hannibal, a movie hmm. we talk about all the time. Yes, the, the, the definitive Hannibal Lecter story. Number eight, Planet of the Apes with 179 oh, million. You know, the 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 Tim Burton Planet of the Apes remake we all loved so much that penetrated the culture. On, on, the, on the reveal, I did like a ranking of 2001 summer blockbusters because I remember that on reflection, there were more good movies and movies that are kind of underrated at the time than than I thought. But I remember thinking, oh, this summer kind of sucks for movies, yeah, kind but, of, kind of but it's going to end with Tim Burton's Planet of the Apes and it's going to be amazing. And I was like, I was pro- <laughs> probably could not have been a bigger fan of either Tim Burton or Planet of the Apes at that time. And yeah. boy, oh boy, oh boy, <laughs> it was not amazing. Even, even at the time, even uh, even with your rose-colored glasses. Oh on, yeah, you no, I I, yeah. I I I saw it as a stinker. It's like I remember yeah. thinking, it kind of starts to come to life, like in the last scene. There's there's like you know, <laughs> I, and it's like, well, this is really too late for this. <laughs> Never meet your heroes, man. Yeah. You don't. You don't <laughs> want to hear that you're. Hey, it, some things really started working in the final <laughs> scene. I know, exactly. <laughs> Number seven uh, with 181 million dollars. Jurassic Park three. I genuinely don't know how many Jurassic Parks there are. There were uh, six. The one. The one that just came out is the sixth. Mm-hmm. And we thought three wasn't great until we saw the three that followed. Uh, in retrospect, <laughs> three is kind of a, you know, good, lean, mean little B movie uh, that does some things that work, in my opinion. Three is good. Yeah, I just rewatched it with my kid. We, yeah. were wa- we were watching all of them leading up to the new one. And I'll go to the mat for the second Jurassic World. That's Fallen Kingdom, right? Yeah, I actually like that yeah. one. I I, 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 gen- right. I generally think that's like a well-directed film, and it, and I love the the decision to basically turn it into a haunted house movie with dinosaurs at one point. You sure, know? It, it works for me. <laughs> sure, sure. 
Other two are trash. Number six, $198 million, Pearl Harbor. Bad. Mm. I feel like there's some flags in that movie or something. <laughs> yeah. I recall flags. Yeah. There might be. No pass. No, no thank you, pass. <laughs> uh, number five with $202 million, The Mummy Inexplicably Returns. returns. <laughs> I didn't really like either of those, but I feel like it's a general, they're, gen- they're generational touchstones. So like, like the, 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 the generation, like a few years younger than us, like loves those movies. Oh, they love these movies. Yeah. They like, love anytime right. I, anytime I talk shit about a mummy movie on Twitter, like my mentions are a fucking mess for two days. Yeah. Those kids love, love those terrible mummy movies. Number four, Mike <laughs> with $226 million. Rush Hour 2. Just pure plastic product. I remember liking the first one just fine and not not caring for the second one. So Yes. Yeah. Yes, correct. Uh, number three with $237 million, Monsters, Inc. Good, Good movie. Had a longer li- it's had a longer life than I expected. Yeah. Yep. I, I liked it a lot then. I like it a lot now. It's a, it's a good one. Yeah. $267 million. Number two is Shrek. Mm. Okay. That's so, that's the reverse of Monsters Inc. That's one I enjoyed quite a bit when it came out. And then after revisiting it more than like twice with my kids, I was like, no, this is garbage. So I saw Shrek once and I thought, this is kind of cute. I like Eddie Murphy right. as the donkey. Never went back to it. I saw Shrek 2. I thought it was terrible. I like I just like I'm just done with I, although I kinda like I kinda like Antonio Banderas' Puss in Boots. But I uh I, like I'm just done with this. And like I, I like and when I had a kid years later, and it was fairly it was easier at that point because it wasn't the juggernaut that it was uh, you know in the early aughts, but I was uh, I was like, let's just do let's put her in a Shrek free free bubble. And uh that's that's, <laughs> that's worked out pretty well. Nice job. Don't watch the movie again, but do yourself the favor of looking up the French wrestler who was the uh, facial and body oh, um, the model for Shrek. Okay. It's, it's completely amazing. Okay. Like, go look up the wrestler that was the model. Did, did either of you guys see yeah. the movie Hallelujah about the little yeah. Cohen song? Yeah. Yes. I, I, like, I knew that Shrek contributed to its popularity. I had Not until I saw that film did I realize it basically is the reason that yes. that song became the institution that it became. Yes. So, you know, some good came from it. All right. Number one movie of 2001, Mike. And number one in 2001 with $288 million, Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. Okay. Keith. Oh, you want me? Uh, you know, my, my, my kid is nuts for Harry Potter. And I like, I mean, Same. I had to divorce my self from the jk rowling of it all which is weird because yeah. i think i think she she wrote those books right she wrote she, she yes she wrote she wrote, <laughs> she wrote all of them and they're like they're, they're these nice books about um you know the perils of conformity and 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 yeah. sticking up for outsiders and and yeah not letting you know uh you know fascist uh uh thought mm-hmm. like it inform you know it inform how you treat other people I don't know. Yep. Uh, there's some pretty good messages in those books. Uh, um, the film, it's you know, I've I really thought it was just so um, you know, it was an audio book with pictures at the time. But you know, it's it, it's it's not. It, I think the series gets really good with when Quran comes in with the third one. Um, I, yep. I like that movie a lot. But in retrospect, you know, those first two as like you know, kind of pedestrian in their approach as they are. I mean, they got that cast together and it's amazing. The production design looks great and it gets things, you know, up and running. Uh, I don't love those first two, but they're, but they're fine. It's fine. 
I think I think I have complained about them before, and I think you may specifically have been who said to me, "Yeah, but you know what? He cast them." Yeah, and that's actually like really, really quite an achievement, all things considered. That like they all three turned out to not only be good actors, but like then afterwards, not insane people. Mm-hmm. Um, unlike the woman who wrote the words that they said. All right, Keith, are you ready to do a lightning round? Sure. Mike, put 10 minutes up on the clock for us, and here we go. Amores Peros. It was in, like, my, in the original list, I, I, it was, like, in the next five I did. Um, I, um, I you know, I have not watched it since. I, it was very powerful to me at the time. I have not liked anything he's, I, each film he's done since then I liked a little less, so I don't know. I, would, I, would I love it now? Maybe. I don't know. But I liked it then. Under the Sand. Ah, it's a great movie. Yeah, uh, that's um, yeah. I, I think I was kind of a, a little, not, not maybe not forgotten, but but uh, um, but uh, you know, I'd say forgotten. Yeah. yeah, check that one out. It's a really, it's a really powerful film. Uh, Christopher Nolan's Memento. Yeah, I mean, you know, obviously, at, at the time I saw it, I thought well, this is just a film. I, I, you know, that just everything clicks in this. You know, it, it, it's in, and and also I feel like. It kind of circling back to Kubrick. I mean, yes, it obviously is. It's, it's a device that with, that's with lots of like moving parts, but I think there's actually a real emotion there too. And I, I, you know, you, you can see a lot of, you know, everything, everything that, that Nolan did after is kind of there in some ways. And, and, and that mm-hmm. film still really works really well. Yeah. Donnie Darko. Yeah, that's a movie. I mean, that's a that's a nine eleven movie with that was by accident, you know. But but yep. it was like, there's a reason that thing became a cult hit afterward. Um, you know, I saw it um, with the critic screening, and I uh, was kind of blown away by it. And then you know, I think it, that may be a generational thing because I think the people of our generation that saw that film came out of it really. Um, struck by it and I think slightly older critics it just did not resonate with nope. uh, nope. as well but but no I, I, that's 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 the movie I'm overdue for a rewatch I don't know I don't like the longer version though I I, I like yeah the, I like not to have some things explained to me sometimes yes. I think it works better without yes. that yep I have a friend with two full sleeve tattoos of images from Donnie Darko <laughs> like wow to say that movie connected with some people <laughs> yeah, wow I mean the certain people that you know that had that it connected with i mean yeah deeper than i think any other movie i can think of yeah uh cameron crowe's vanilla sky uh, really underrated i love that movie you know i do too uh, if people uh, and uh, people still, still slag that one off but it's like uh, it's a huge um risk for crow for tom cruise like you know in his risk taking period in still yeah at that point no, um i and- think it's real interesting to revisit that movie in light of this the way that sort of that that new Top Gun, in some interesting ways, sort of interrogates hmm, interesting. the original and his persona. and the But the film that has done that most directly, that has been sort of grappling with the idea of celebrity and of Tom Cruise as an icon is Vanilla Sky. Two things that stick with me about that movie. One is what he does, what Crow does with the soundtrack of that is, yeah. is is revolutionary in a way that I don't think anyone's ever followed up on, but the way songs will fade in and out and get mashed together. Mm-hmm. Two, I always think of when Cameron Diaz's character asks Tom Cruise's character what he thinks of her music, and his response is, it's very vivid. And I I, I love that as a, as a non-committal <laughs> response. <laughs> That's good. I'm going to hang on to that. Um, audition. 
Uh, yeah, oh, my 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 uh, my good friend Scott Tobias's avatar <laughs> for his entire social media existence. Uh, that's another. I mean, we talked about Mulholland Drive just being a, like a total like gear shift. But like, what I love yeah. about that movie is you could watch the first hour and think it's you know it's in some you know it, it, you think it's like a film that's if you think it is a film that's not interrogating its main characters, it's, it's like a really gross kind of rom-com yeah. in some ways <laughs> yes <laughs> once you realize the film you're actually watching it, it it's too late you can't get out uh yeah i love it and there's it actually has like the biggest i want i don't want to spoil the film but it has like the biggest like tension release laugh i've seen in a oh, film God. <laughs> you know where it's like it's not funny but i have to laugh at what i'm seeing because i had to laugh at, yes. i had to do something with my body right now <laughs> cure uh, yeah, I mean that was that was that was great too. I got a chance to see that in the theater um, at the Siskel Center here in Chicago, and and um, just yeah, that's 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 a really disturbing film. Another one I'm overdue for a rewatch. Uh, Todd Fields in the bedroom. Uh, that one I, I liked a lot too. Um, it's 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 that's a, that's a heartbreaking film. Did I put it in my? I'm surprised I didn't put it in my top ten for the year. But again, it was a, just a really um, mm-hmm. strong strong year. But that's that's like. Yeah, that's got a got, that's got another one of those scenes in it that that that'll, mm-hmm. that'll just stick stick with me. And we might not even be thinking about the same one, but there's 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 a few of them in that in that movie. Code unknown. Code unknown. I didn't see till later. Uh, like I don't mm. think I saw it till a couple of years ago. But uh, um, you know, Hanukkah. It's <laughs> I, I, I yeah. like I like Hanukkah a lot. Um, but it took me like three times to actually watch funny games. Cause I like, I, I would, I would start it and I like, I like, I saw the dog. I like, Nope, I'm not doing this today. Uh, but I do really respect the film. Uh, his, his, you know, his films a lot. John Dahl's Joyride. That's a really great genre film, you know? And, yeah. and I, I wish, I wish Dahl right now. I mean, he's, does fine for himself. He directs like the best TV shows around or some of the best TV yeah. shows. And so he's very busy and, and, and well-employed. Uh, but I, you know, I just it's it's a great little genre film at a and, and I don't think we get enough of those these days. So I wish he was still making a bunch of them. But um, but that's that's one I think it's kind of been overlooked over the years. Mm-hmm. But if you're just looking for um, a fun a fun kind of disturbing time, that's 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 a good movie for you. Ridley Scott's second film of 2001 was Black Hawk Down. So I need to go back to that as well. I remember being. Very funny, a really powerful, and maybe a little even mm-hmm. confusing because there's a lot of characters in that in that movie. Mm-hmm. I definitely like a lot the, of white dudes who look vaguely the same, in and that movie. who were like emerging British actors who yep. I always get confused <laughs> at the time, yep. we- wearing wearing uniforms and helmets, you know. Yes. So, um, so, but I, I I do you know it's I I like that one a lot better than Hannibal, and he's Scott's yeah. weird that way where he'll yeah. do a film that's great and a film that's lousy in the same year i never know what i'm going to get for him from him i'm always interested in seeing what he's doing though yep legally blonde i underrated that at the time i, I think you know mm-hmm. i i think we were kind of spoiled for for fun comedies that we'd be that we could like you know point to well yep. i don't know if this is really doing all that but it's like you, know, you get you get a charming lead you get you know a, a you know fun characters and you know, it's it's sweet little romance, but the romance isn't centered. You actually care about this person achieving her goals. Uh, uh, yeah, it's 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 a fun one. Um, John Carpenter's Ghosts of Mars. And, uh, you know, it's not good. <laughs> it's a film I've probably no. seen 
three times over the years for various yeah. reasons. And it is kind of interesting to be, to kind of revisit assault on precinct 13 on, on Mars. Um, mm-hmm. I, it's one of those movies where it either needed to be, have a much lower budget or a much bigger budget to work. And it's just, mm-hmm. just kind of like in this middle, you still get flashes of Carpenter in it, but it's, you know, not, not, not enough of them, you know? One that was uh, just outside of that um, that top ten, uh, Steven Soderbergh's Ocean's Eleven. Oh right, that was that year, wasn't it? I mean, yeah, yeah that's that's a good time, and 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 uh, wow, yeah, that that's 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 a fun one, and and I I uh, what would it take to make that movie happen now? <laughs> you know, to get that many stars together for the, uh, for a director who's doing his own thing within in the confines yes. of that story, right? Uh, well, you could you could only make that movie for Netflix, and it would cost five hundred million dollars because they wouldn't be able to do the back end deals, which was the only way they were able to afford that cast to begin with. Right? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, we, again, once again, we we should appreciate what we had when we had it. Um, Kevin Smith's Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back. I, I'm just, I'm not a huge Kevin Smith guy, and 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 I really didn't care for 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 that one. Um, I I was a really big Kevin Smith guy, and that yeah. was the first one where I was kind of like, mm, maybe we're maybe we're scraping the bottom here a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I res- I mean, I respect you know at this point, I just respect anyone who has like their own vision that they're pursuing. It just wasn't like I, Clerks is Clerks is pretty good. Mallrats is fine. Chasing Amy, I remember liking at the time, but boy, I don't know about that one. You know, that's one <laughs> one perhaps may have we might look at differently uh, today than we did at the time. Um, I think beyond that, it's 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 pretty. You know what? No, that's not true. I like one of the few people that, that stuck up for Jersey Girl. I thought Jersey Girl was a fine little comedy, um, and I still like the scene where they put on um, where they they, <laughs> Sweeney, they, they Todd. Sweeney Todd with, with kids. You know, that's that's an inspired comic touch. So okay, you know what? Kevin Smith's great. Um, <laughs> all right. And to close out the lightning round, let me give you the September 11th, the post September 11th, triple play of glitter. Don't say a word in Zoolander. Those are just all like all my viewings they're, they're of just those are, are just tied up with nine 11 because glitter, yeah. I remember seeing it was not, it was not screened for critics. And so I went to shocking. I know. Shocking. I think I was at the same screening as other critics. Like I think Lisa, yeah. Lisa Alspector from the reader was at the same screening I was, but, but I do remember <laughs> the audience, like you, you see the twin towers and it just, it kind mm-hmm. of felt, you know, you could hear, you kind of feel the audience react in a way that's like, I like seeing this in a way, <laughs> you know, mm. it, it, you know, it, it's, and yep. don't, don't say a word there in there too. Zoolander. Yep. I believe they, they are CGI'd out. Yes. And there's a, yes. there's a shot of the New York skyline and, and it just kind of looks wrong for them not to be there. I, I think yeah. Eber, Ebert's review of that is, is just like kind of caught up with the madness of, of the moment yes. in many ways, but, but it just, it did just felt like kind of, you know, an off- offensive thing to, to erase them from the skyline. All right. Well, that is our lightning round. Uh, you did very well, Keith. We made it through, through a good chunk there. Um, all right. Before we sign off, let's talk a little bit about your wonderful book, uh, Age of Cage. Sure. Uh, for any for anyone, which first of all, you know, highly recommend. Fun, uh, page turner, thoughtful, well-assembled. Lots to say about uh, Mr. Cage and, and the films of his life. But tell us, for those who aren't familiar with the book, 
uh, how it is different from your sort of, you know, conventional cradle to now uh, cage book. It's not a it's not what we think of as a conventional biography. It's not a biography. I mean, there's plenty of biographical details in there. But the idea was like I wanted to look at I wanted to write about something that would kind of cover the entirety of my, like my conscious movie going existence in some ways. Uh, <laughs> sure. Like I, I have vague memories of, you know, in films of 1982, I was, I was young at the time, but I was you know starting to pay attention to these things. And, but I mean, but also just, but more, more of the point, like Cage is a fascinating character. Uh, I think he's an excellent mm-hmm. actor. I, and if you're going to spend a year watching, someone's work um you're not gonna be bored watching nicholas cage movies yep. um and uh i mean just there is just he's just such a weird x factor in terms of like where he fits in to films i mean you know i i still i remember when when uh the rock came out it's like nicholas cage is doing an action film i mean this is <laughs> yeah. this is so strange and there's people that kind of know when i talk to people who are you know kind of outside of cinephile circles you know they're going to cite the rock and con air and gone in 60 seconds as, as, as a Nicholas Cage and face off. Yeah. As their first Nicholas Cage movies that come to come to mind and like to them, it's like action right. star first. But I, I still think that that kind of misfit quality, it makes is what made him interesting as an action star. And, and it's, it's, you go through, you know, he fits in differently at different periods. I'm, I'm kind of fascinated by that early nineties period where he basically more often than not was playing like, the normal guy, like you know, the right. the, the, the Tom the Hanks in Vegas, yeah, yeah. The, the Tom Hanksian nice guy, right? And he was really quite good at it, and, and you know, no one will not not people not that those movies are themselves are forgotten, but it's not how he'll be remembered. He won't be remembered as like right. you know today today's Jimmy Stewart, Nicolas Cage, but for a right. while that was kind of the part he was playing, <laughs> you know, and and, yeah. and uh, um, but it's also I think it's it's interesting it's interesting to see how he emerges in the eighties as, as kind of like someone who is still gravitating to both to projects that were like the new Hollywood, like what was left of the new Hollywood, obviously right. you know, Francis Ford Coppola is in a bunch of his films as, as his uncle. So he's kind of like has an in there, but, but even like when you see him ending up in a Coen brothers film is it is obviously now we see it as the beginning of the independent cinema of, of, of what would, you know, American independent, the next phase, you know, with the kind of boom in the, in the nineties, but in some ways it's kind of like a holdover from what was there before too, you know? And, and um, yeah. I think the aughts are interesting because he, you know, he makes a lot of great movies in the aughts and, it, but also kind of does a lot of wandering from, different type of film to different type of film without really finding a great place to fit in. So it's an interesting career to follow. And I, I, th- I hope, I hope people enjoy uh, the book as, as such. No, I think it's, 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 it's such an ingenious way to sort of the idea of looking at how the film industry has changed and how film stardom has changed solely by looking at the the career of a of someone who has been a movie star mm-hmm. for a very long time. Like I think that is what is so clever about the book is the idea that this was, you know, a guy who who wanted to do interesting work, who who wanted to do things where he could make choices. 
uh, who wanted a degree of artistic freedom, but who also wanted to keep working. And so, you know, when you follow what that meant to keep working as an actor, to be a, a consistently employed working actor from the early 80s to the present day, the path that that takes him on tells us so much about the path that movies themselves have gone on. And that's, I think, just such a clever sort of dual. There's two books kind of happening. There. Yeah, and I think also... You know, I think we're a little bit of a cage renaissance right now, and I hope that continues. I think I think Pig is one of the best films mm-hmm. he's ever made and one of his best best Absolutely. performances. And I, and I think Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent is a really fun film. And knowing about, you know, he's involved and it's knowing about his in, in some really fun ways. But I think, obviously, the long decade of mostly doing directed VOD stuff is was inspired mm-hmm. in part by um you know he had some financial troubles that required him to work and work and work to, to keep paying the bills but it also coincides with a devaluing of movie stars and you know, he did not have yep. a franchise to kind of give him a safe foothold in, in the filmmaking business and and the, the, the part of what happened was a result of that yep yep well it's a fascinating career it's a fascinating book uh, and Keith, congratulations on it. It's it, I, you're one of my favorite film writers. Oh, thanks, so, man. you know, the fact that the fact that I've got you on the shelf now is is a real treat. And I thank you again for for coming on the show and sharing so many of these recommendations and memories with us. We really do. Well, anytime. It. And thanks. For, thank you both for having me. This was a, this was a lot of fun. It was it's 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 neat to focus on like one year and kind of kind of like you know figure out what the shape of it was um but the lightning round is really fun too <laughs> although we did not get to some of the really bad movies that came out that year but perhaps oh, that yes. is another podcast so <laughs> yes guess so all right thank you so much keith thanks guys thank you mike thank you jason and thank you for listening it was a very good year 